This is the great speech, the big speech. We are the speech guys, and we're talking about uh, the 1940s today. We have a, um, a conclusion, a, a perhaps a wrap-up of some themes we've done around World War II, and ending with not a general or the, the true top leader of a, a free world allied country. But we're talking about Henry Wallace, Henry Agard Wallace. Um, with us today, we have Matt, Mike, and Ross. How's everyone doing? Hello. Glad to be here. Glad to great, be here. Great to be here, Landon. Mm. Living the dream. Living the dream, boys. I would be curious, when I sent it over, did anyone have... Any clue who Henry Wallace was? No. <laughs> Didn't even nothing. I got I had nothing. And then after reading about him, we we do share some notes and do some background reading here. Initial thoughts, just one word before we get into it. What do you think of him? And and the topic we're about to discuss. I got three words that sums him up pretty quickly. He asked for one word. <laughs> no, three's fine. Farmer. No, four words. Farmer first Bernie Sanders. That's pretty fair. Like four words. My word. My word. After a, a brief glance looking at him, I would say impressed. I was impressed. 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 Do you say that about Bernie Sanders as well? <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, two on the nose. Matt? Gosh, I don't know. There's so many. He's a very complex. I'll say complex. Yeah, complex. There's a lot going on here. Yeah. Hey, True. Landon, I, I got a fuller answer for you. If you want to use this as, like, the real response for this question, <laughs> when I was reading about him, um, the first person that sort of came to mind was less Bernie Sanders, and I'd say more of like a Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, no, he riffing is um, very, very much a Renaissance man from agriculture. You know, he owned his own very successful agriculture uh, seed business. Um, learned calculus in order to understand hog prices better. Um, and obviously, uh, did more than just dabble in, uh, the major social justice issues of the time, most significantly, uh, women's working rights and civil rights issues pertaining to, um, African Americans. Yeah. So, I have said it of course, other things as yeah. well, but yeah. Basically, he was, he was the 20th century TJ, essentially. Um, and yeah, it was probably like ahead of his time, just taking like cross disciplinary subjects and um, I don't know, thinking very deeply and having a podium at which to express and like disperse a lot of his uh, critical ideas. Um, I feel like we're talking around him a lot. Deeply, can anyone? But, Go ahead, Matt. You said we're talking around him a lot. Yeah, I feel like we're talking around him a lot. Like, we're saying good things, true things about him. But, like, let's... Do, do we have... I don't know. I feel like a succinct, a succinct biography of sorts might be good for the listeners to just get some context for who he is and why he's important. Yeah. Let me see if I can do it in as quickly as possible. First... I myself didn't know who this guy was until about three years ago. My tech startup um, was acquired by DuPont Pioneer, one of the major agriculture firms in the world. Naturally, I'm like, all right, what is the history and the background of this company? I stumble upon Henry Wallace. He founded the company in the 1920s. Um, it became one of the largest ag, seed corn, seed production um, uh, supply chains for farmers, and he was 
one of the most powerful USDA Ag Secretaries we've ever had. And he was Roosevelt's vice president from 41 to 44, which was a pretty critical time in America. And he almost, he should have been Roosevelt's vice president uh, on that last go-around, which, as we know, would have made him president when uh, FDR passed away. So I was fascinated to know that the, the gentleman who had founded one of the larger ag companies was also extremely involved in shaping agriculture policy as we, as we know it, getting us out of the Great Depression, leading us through a world war, um, and had a chance to basically be uh, one of the United States presidents, perhaps be even more influential, but just didn't quite that make make that you know upper crust of american history um but when you when you look down a little further he was involved involved in a lot and some of his political ideology and thinking um was unique um perhaps a, a little socialistic and we can see um see some of its themes and key causes running true, ringing true uh, in American life today. So, yeah, I think Vice President Henry Wallace might be the uh, highest distinguished term that we uh, would address him as Vice President or Secretary Wallace. Did anybody else have other highlighting tidbits? Uh, we have a, a hand raised, Mr. Schaefer. Yeah, um, you know, connecting kind of the ideas of agriculture and his sort of socialist policy, I was pretty intrigued most specifically by what he called the ever or what academics call the ever normal granary plan. I'd be interested, uh, especially Landon, in your opinion on this, where it was basically a very much government managed approach to agriculture. When crop production was too high, government would purchase um, crop products. When production or how yeah, do you did you read this Landon so I'm not stepping all over myself, the ever normal granary plan? Yeah, I think what what had occurred, I think we were in a period of overproduction. Um certainly in hogs, maybe in crops, and to reset the scales. I think part of the, the first, basically the first farm bill, as we know, it came out in 1933, completely the brainchild and almost exclusively written, uh, word for word, by Henry Wallace. Um, I don't think I know all of the weeds, nor do we want to get into the weeds of farm policy. It's kind of boring. But what happened, I think they, you know, they paid farm to farm in some places. They even slaughtered a lot of hogs just because there were too many um, at the time. And what um, what it came to be is, you know, any society's um, yeah, ongoing concern or the first problem a society has to address is like, how are we going to feed ourselves? And when the food supply um, disappears, there is almost, you know, no more structure to society. And so uh, that came to be a bit of a problem through the Great Depression, and we had to solve for that first. And so what he basically, in some ways, dare I say, you know, socialized agriculture in how how much production was tracked, how much supply was managed, how prices were incentivized or subsidized, and made um, much of the need to be to, to worry about where our food comes from or agriculture in general kind of an afterthought because it, we eliminated some of the going concern. I'm I'm sort of intrigued by this, you know. So oftentimes, I know this sort of departs a little bit from the speech a little bit, um, but still on the topic of Wallace, uh, this. So oftentimes people who make these kinds of government control policies, you know, they tend to be liberals who are just not as closely connected to the farm. Obviously, in Wallace's case, he was making, he was proposing, he was acting on these kinds of policies. But he was someone who deeply understood agriculture. Yeah, yeah. 
professor of agronomy's belief uh, that the most aesthetically pleasing corn produced the greatest yield. Um, yeah, so I don't know. Just just that idea interests me, and that can open up a whole another can of worms um, regarding a different topic. But yeah, I mean, we're we're just kind of filling out the idea here. If it's Renaissance man, someone deeply understood things that were just on complete opposite ends of the spectrum in many ways. Ross, do you have a thought? Um, honestly, on the agriculture stuff, I feel like I didn't go quite as deep as Mike it sounded like, so I don't feel like I have as much to add there. Yeah, yeah. Um, kind of the complexity of the figure to just kind of add to what we're saying before we dive too much into um, the speech that we talked about. Just I kind of also, I mean, I mean, in some ways, like Mike said, kind of uh, opposites of the spectrum, kind of some liberal policies but then very imbued and like identified with agriculture, which today in a politician, I feel like you don't see those two types of things, but then kind of a third one, he just had some interesting, I guess I didn't dive too deep, but just almost religious thoughts as well. Um, he kind of had some correspondences with some interesting figures dabbled in different things. Um, and just not your typical, again, if we're holding up a, most of our presidents kind of right, you kind of had, they kind of stuck to their mainstream thoughts that maybe agreed with other people. Um, he seems to be, I guess, a little bit different on that aspect as well. Um, just a couple things. I, and again, I didn't dive too deep, but I mean, he just, you hear things like, um, he had a, at one point he was attending meetings of the Pantheistic Theosophical Society. Um, he left this liberal Catholic church, which he found to join an Episcopal church, later said he dabbled in mysticism had a correspondence with some kind of weird Russian sounding guy, just some, I don't know, just kind of some interesting, not off, I guess, off the beaten path thoughts on that type of thing as well, just to kind of blend with the other things that make him somewhat of a complex individual, as Matt said. He also, great thoughts, Ross. He also gave a speech, Landon. Should we direct our attention to the speech, kind of bring us back to his uh, legacy, which makes us talk about him here? Absolutely. Yeah, so the speech, it is titled The Century of the Common Man. And I I knew, uh, I knew Henry Wallace to have had, he wrote, he was a prolific writer. I think... It must be said before I jump into this, just how much he wrote. His grandfather and his father owned uh, one of the primary ag publications um, in Iowa at the time. It still exists today in a, uh, a couple different forms, but it was called Wallace's Farmer. Huge circulation. It was essentially um, a way that a lot of Midwest America got their news, got their um, studies, you know, learn about how to be better at corn, soy, hog farmers. Um, and so as soon as Wallace got done with Iowa State, he went to go work for his grandfather's publishing company. So, uh, you know, he was a writer for that and also used some of those things Mike was talking about, calculus. Uh, he essentially, there's a little bit of credit, he almost single-handedly invented um the, the study of agriculture, economics, and applying some of the mainline economic theory and statistics to getting, uh, um, yeah, essentially a cohort of people around the country to um, build those principles out in agricultural markets. Um, so when he came to Roosevelt, Roosevelt knew him as a brilliant mind and needed help to fix and, um, you know, guide a lot of rural America and fix the food and grain markets. And so um, Wallace was perfectly suited for that. He obviously rose and, and became vice president in 41 and was tapped to uh, essentially be part of the message to get America involved in the war and um, to be behind it. And that is the setting for this speech. Roosevelt sent him to South America a lot and tried to um, basically drum up uh, support in what happened in New York for the speech. It is actually early in the war. I thought it was later, May of 1942. So the war hasn't ended, and much of this is to uh, kind of find a just cause for uh, World War II. I think coming out of the war, 
Wallace was looking towards, um, you know, how to how to make for peaceful transitions and other things. But the setting here is a little bit earlier in World War II. The room is full with people from all over the world. I think 40 different national leaders were in New York at this time, and Wallace was sent to send the message. So, a century of the common man, a few excerpts from the speech. <clears throat> As we begin the final stages of this fight to the death between the free world and the slave world, it is worthwhile to refresh our minds about the march of freedom for the common man. The idea of freedom, the freedom that we in the United States know and love so well, is derived from the Bible it, with its extraordinary emphasis on the dignity of the individual. Democracy is the only true political expression of Christianity. The prophets of the Old Testament were the first to preach social justice, but that which was sensed by the prophets many centuries before Christ was not given complete and powerful political expression until our nation here in the United States was formed as a federal union a century and a half ago. Even then, the march of the common people had just begun. Most of them did not yet know how to read and write. There were no public schools. Men and women cannot be really free until they have plenty to eat and time and ability to read and think and talk things over. <clears throat> Some have spoken of the American century. I say that century on which we are entering, the century that will come after being in this war, can and must be the century of the common man. Perhaps it will be America's opportunity to support the freedoms and duties by which the common man must live. Everywhere, the common man must learn to build his own industries with his own hands in practical fashion. Everywhere, the common man must learn to increase his productivity so that he and his children can eventually pay to the world community all that they have received. No nation will have the God-given right to exploit other nations. Older nations will have the privilege to help younger nations get started on the path to industrialization. But there must be neither military nor economic imperialism. And I will stop there. Two paragraphs from a couple of different parts of, of the speech that uh, I thought were kind of highlight uh, the ethos of, of Wallace. So why does this speech matter, Landon? Why, why did this speech stick out to you? Why did you pick this speech? Yep, I think I think the reason I picked this speech, this was probably the one phrase, the century of the common man that was most attributed to Wallace, um, this speech, given the, the first time that he gave the speech. Um, he gave different versions of it and was pretty good at stumping around this message. What it evolved into um, over the years was, um, and I say over the years, probably the next three years, is there became a, uh, a fear of, um, you know, post-World War II of what, what roles Russia would play in some of the redevelopment. And there was a probably a key feeling that as soon as we defeated the Germans, should we go on to Moscow? Should we snuff out communism? It's not that much better than Nazism. And... Um, that existed in several forms, obviously, over the next couple of decades as we fought other wars. And Wallace could already see that this speech doesn't show that, but in, in Wallace's history, he could already see that that was the case, that that last sentence I just read, there must be neither military nor economic imperialism. Um, there was going to be a, a want to keep the war engine running, to find the next enemy, to um, keep that part of of it up and he very much was like you know let let their policies you know it can be a test maybe maybe they should let communism run its course and 
we will prove that capitalism and democracy is the best um, God-given form for the individual common man. And he did not want to go fight wars. That um, verbiage that he had ended up, he was ousted essentially from the not to continue under Roosevelt's VP and replaced with Truman in 1945. And so back then, uh, VPs were still elected um, separately. And at the party convention, uh, Wallace was basically subbed out for uh, something a little, you know, Truman wasn't quite as a known figure at the time, but um, more easily, you know, perhaps would get in line or not ruffle so many feathers on some of this more grander, visionary, perhaps a little socialistic um, ideas that Wallace had. So I think that that interesting uh, uh, point of who Wallace was and how how he might have affected post-war America, I think this speech points to uh, his background. Yeah, I think what's sort of striking to me about his ethos, if you will, is how, you know, it's not like he was apathetic towards communism or that he was a socialist. He was obviously different from Bernie Sanders in the fact that right. Bernie Sanders yeah. is, a, is a socialist. Wallace yeah. was not a socialist. Right. But he simply believed that the best way to resolve this which, I mean, I think one can argue, I mean, it, it sort of has, right? I mean, obviously, there is no more Soviet Union. Is Russia world power? I mean, yes and no, I suppose, is the most accurate answer. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting sort of thought experiment. What if we had had this sort of mindset applied towards um, Islamic extremism. Or, or but just, you know, taking ourselves back to 2003, 2001 era, where President Bush wanted to take us to the Middle East for war. Um, You know, regardless momentarily of the rightness or wrongness of that, like, I don't know, how would things be different if we had had this attitude of more, it will die out on its own? So just an interesting approach um, that you don't necessarily hear articulated a lot. Everything has to be very aggressive, it seems like, or else what are you doing? But, um, yeah. So, yeah, um, I want to jump off what Mike just said a little bit. So real quick before I get into it. Um, yeah, I think part of why the speech, I mean, like he set it up from the very beginning. Like, right, we said, I mean, this is during the war. So, right, in some sense, it's like we're going to talk more about him not wanting to maybe be as involved in what would be the Cold War and things like that. But it's not like the dude was a straight-up pacifist or anything, right? He's given this this speech to not, not, I mean, not drum up support necessarily, but sort of, I think, drum up support for a war. So it's not like he's like some, you know, weird figure, pacifist, let's not ever fight any wars. That's not him either. Um, And then he even starts his speech, or I'm sorry, the, the segment you chose started with, right? He sets it up as the the free world versus the slave world. So, I mean, very much a, almost like a, these are the good guys, these are the bad guys type thing. Um, so it's not like he's a pacifist, and he is, I mean, in some some ways, you know, this speech makes it clear the what we should be involved right now. And yet, like you said, at the end, he definitely got his, his, his maybe points across, right? The being against imperialism, which, and then, Mike, you brought up in the thought experiment, like, what if we just let this die out, you know? Um, there was a quote... Um, that I found interesting that kind of, I mean, pretty much played this very, I mean, it's not, they, the, this doesn't play the thought experiment, but we have two differing opinions on Wallace. So this is from the Untold History of the United States, okay? By all, and Oliver Stone argues that had Wallace become president in 1945, which like Landon said at the beginning was, I mean, not that far from happening, um, quote, there might have been no atomic bombings, no nuclear arms race, and no Cold War, end quote. So it's like, okay, that sounds pretty nice. Maybe we should have had Wallace become president and just let it die out. 
contrast, Ron Capshaw of the Conservative National Review argues that a President Wallace would have practiced a policy of appeasement that would have allowed the spread of communism into countries like Iran, Greece, and Italy. So pretty much the other viewpoint that, yeah, he's pretty much practicing appeasement. And then we have similar things to what we saw way back in the beginning of this World War II segment, right, when, when Churchill was the only voice arguing we should fight for stalling, where the powers that be, or we should fight, I'm sorry, Hitler, where the powers that be had more of the, oh, no, like, let's let it, let's let him be. We don't want to fight a war. And then obviously it led to almost Hitler taking over Europe. So, um, yeah, I think those are just interesting questions because I feel like it's kind of one of those things that hindsight's usually 2020. But in the in the moment, that can just be. I mean, I guess it is a hard call, but it just, a, like you said, kind of an interesting thought experiment, I guess, at times. Yeah, and I, I think that's why I think that's why I find Wallace so complex um, is that he's not so he's not this pacifist. He's not uh, certainly not a socialist, just from like the excerpts that you read, Landon, about democracy being the only true political expression of Christianity. Um, he's very much like for this war against um, uh, the Germans and um, emphasizing freedom. Um, and I don't think, and, and, and I don't even know that if you were to think about just how things ended up transpiring with Russia and what they ended up doing on their end, um, obviously it's, it's, um, it's more complex because, you know, that there's United States, um, I don't know if aggression is the right word, but assertion, you know, and certainly, uh, this involved United Nations and Great Britain as well. Like they were very concerned about Russia being a world power too. It wasn't like just us who, who tried to, to push back against the Russians. Um, but he's just very, let me take a step back for a second. One of the, I think this might have been in the second speech that you posted, Landon, um, about him kind of with this, idea of um, kind of taking a step back, letting things die out, not being super assertive. Um, but he's, you know, basically said, you know, Russia can, you know, interact with their neighbors and we can interact with our neighbors and, you know, they can do whatever they want with people in Eastern Europe and we can kind of interact with our neighbors in Central and Latin America and, you know, the world will be fine. But like we all know that didn't exactly play out that way. Um, certainly we had a lot of influence in, in, or tried to have a lot more influence in Europe and they also had to quite, had quite a bit of influence in Latin America. So like, I don't know that even though he, his ideals sounded, um, appeasement-y or sounded, um, kind of very, uh, I don't know, like he was just going to make all these compromises, um, he also had lines, you know, he, he did kind of assert himself, uh, staunchly against like certain aspects of communism and certain aspects of, um, I don't know, I suppose you can call it like subsidiarity and that like we're going to work with our neighbors and they're going to work with their neighbors and we're not going to try to have this imperialistic control over the whole world. Um, at the same time, like if Russia, I mean, Russia did end up stepping on our toes. If they would have done that under a Wallace presidency, like I don't know that he would have just been a pushover either, you know, because he did have like a very principled stance. So I don't know. I think that's why I'm intrigued by him because he he's a very he's a hard guy to pin down. And I think these projections that Ross mentioned, um, I think those are kind of hard to pin down too because I can see things kind of breaking down a number of ways. Um. Correct me if I'm wrong. So obviously the Vietnam War was about um, not permitting the spreading of communism. Um, the well, I guess the Korean War was the same thing. Yes. Yeah. 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 So here's the, in another. I've got so many thought experiments tonight. It's so dang also, complex. <laughs> <laughs> This also sort of, this takes, for those not familiar, uh, the concept of subsidiarity is this idea that what can be governed at the local level can only be governed at the level above that should be governed by that. It's a very important concept within the Catholic Church's social justice teachings. But 
What I, I sort of had this, a thought that struck me here is um, we see the exact same thing taking place, I think, in a successful marriage or dating relationship, especially where, you know, stakes are rel- higher than, you know, just a friendship or something. In a relationship, you can have your beliefs that, well, you should have your beliefs that a given belief system is better than someone else's, right? Because otherwise, why are you believing that? But the way that you bring this person to your belief system is not by imposing it on them as if it is this sterile um, body of beliefs, not the shell of beliefs. Rather, it's something living, breathing. It's going to be something that needs to be matured into. And I see that same sort of parallel in Wallace's perspective on how to bring the rest of the world into a thriving capitalistic democracy, not through the approach that the United States more or less took, where it was, if we see communism, we're going to spill blood for it, but rather it will die out and take smaller control measures in order to assist. Um, so anyway, I think it's interesting that it might be a little bit easier to see where he's coming from in smaller spaces. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting and maybe provoking at some level to think, oh, well, you know, that maybe should be true at the, the international level as well. Yeah, I think that's an interesting thought. Um, and then, I mean, we probably want to get on something else too. I don't, we, I don't think we want to beat a dead horse too much, but then just to add to the thought experiment though, like right back at like not necessarily to disagree, but just to kind of keep the thought moving. So like you said, it's almost like maybe we should have thought, you know, maybe these wars, like, should we have done this? Maybe we should have let it die out. But like, what if they had taken that same logic to Hitler? Right. That's what a lot of the British did. And so, uh, right, uh, uh, Churchill was, I mean, initially and Churchill was one of the ones who's like, nope, like, Kind of like Matt said, like line drawn too far. Like we're going, you know, we got to fight this guy. Um, so eventually, like, eventually the line has to get drawn, I guess, if somebody is willing to go so far. Um, so kind of like, yeah, you know, we'll let communism die out. But I mean, like, look at the Soviet Union. I mean, communism doesn't just die out immediately. I mean, tons of tons of people are going to die and go through bad things, you know, so. It's not like so simple as just, oh yeah, it's this bad idea. They'll get, they'll, they'll learn better. It's like, well, a lot of people's lives are going to be impacted by, you know, letting this play out. So, um, yeah, anyway. And that's why I like the complexity, you know, cause like when, and I don't know how much he, I don't know how much was known worldwide at the time in terms of what was, um, just the the degree of like, oppression and and genocide and and whatnot that was going on in communist regimes. Um, I mean, like Andy. I mean, total estimates. Like it's hard to estimate just because there's um, a lot of unofficial record keeping, whatever. Um, I mean, looking on Wikipedia, they cite probably a eh, ten or so different. Um, kind of studies on the, the death counts of, of communism. Um, I think the lowest was 20 million. Um, but that was a kind of an outlier on the low end. Everything else was 70 million and above. Um, yeah. During I don't know, world I like, war two, during world war two or the, like the transition from some of these, uh, monarchy societies directly to communism like Russia or, China, kind of. I would say th- so. This is more the latter. So this is not like what was done up to World War II. This is kind of like, yeah. And, th- and part of the problem with with a lot of these uh, death counts or death totals is that um, some include all of Russia and exclude everything else. Some include Russia and China. Some include, yeah, um, you know, a, a variety of different things. So there's not really an established means of of calculating that. But regardless, whether you're talking 20 million or 100 million like it's still a pretty there's a certainly a human rights issue that i would say is comparable to uh the nazis 
I know it's a little bit more diffuse. It's not quite as art, um, like this, this really profound articulation of like a genocide like the Nazis had. Like it's definitely different. Um, but certainly, um, yeah, certainly alarming, certainly disturbing. And like the type of thing that, again, I don't know how much was known at the time, but, um, but yeah, certainly the type of thing I could see with, with more knowledge and with more, um, exposure, that being the type of thing that a guy like, even like Henry Wallace would, would sort of, um, would, would realize or, or have, I don't know, not like he didn't realize there were issues there, but, um, perhaps have like just changed the equation for a guy like, like Wallace. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's definitely, I, 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 do like the approach and I like what you said earlier, Mike, about the kind of taking subsidiarity on an international level and, and kind of, um, yeah, the idea of, of that being and kind of trusting ourselves, you know, to, to kind of like, we don't need to confront them directly. Like we can trust that, you know, if we believe what we say we believe and we believe that's a good thing that that's going to win out. Um, but at the same time, like those ideals, if they're getting, uh, yeah, if they're just being abused and, and there's people worldwide, like, I don't know, just as Henry Wallace was very um, forward about uh, our need to confront the Nazis, um, I could see potentially there being uh, a, a change in the equation for him in, in some means of, uh, or him being open to some means of confronting um, yeah. confronting the, the Soviets. Yeah. And he does do that. I will, to wrap up kind of the primary part of his biography, um, he was a team sport. Truman got the VP. FDR passed away. Um, and Wallace took on the Secretary of Commerce, was still, you know, a very influential, you know, top cabinet member for Truman, but had his tendencies to go and uh, speak his mind. And he gave a speech that ended up being published. It got back to Truman later. Here's the last paragraph of it. Russian ideas of social economic justice are go going to govern nearly a third of the world. Our ideas of free enterprise democracy will govern much of the rest. The two ideas will endeavor to prove which can deliver the most satisfaction to the common man in their respective areas of political dominance. Under friendly, peaceful competition, the Russian world and the American world will gradually become more alike. The Russians will be forced to grant more and more of the personal freedoms, and we shall become more and more absorbed with the problems of social economic justice. Um, I, I love... <laughs> yeah, go for it, Mike. I, for it. I love that line. I love it because it's just so, it's so realistic. It makes sense. It's so positive. Um, gosh, oh man. Yeah, I, I, hmm. I, I, I think, I think we should connect that. Yeah. You know, that again, you think we should what? We, you, you think we should what? Um, well, well, I'll, I'll just restart here. So I love this sentence from Wallace here that this idea that the Russians and us are going to sort of kind of meet in the middle to some extent. Um, and what I like about that is because it's so positive, it's so realistic. And, uh, you know, I, I think it is important to connect things to current events to some, to some extent. You know, I was, Watching before this debate between President Obama and Senator Romney uh, when they were running against each other, and I, I saw their their very diplomatic and respectful dialogue, and I thought to, of course, uh, President Trump and Vice President Biden's debate. Of course, it was infamous recently. The the point here is that it's just so striking the refreshing positivity and realism to um 
well, I say, gosh, is I, I don't know. I, I'm not going to overextend my thought any more than that, but it was just simply saying this, man, gosh, if only we had more of this realistic optimism in uh, political offices these days. Oh, man. Even thinking to the videos I was watching on President Truman uh, in preparation for this, like, this is sort of a meta question, and I'll cut myself off after this comment, but it's like, golly, why why do we more positive realism, I'll call it, today in politics? Like, what is it that makes people like Vice President Wallace so rare I say rare. They definitely exist. I can think of a few politicians who have that uh, demeanor. Um, but why Why is it so rare? Why do we not see it in more political leaders today? That's a big question. Um, what, what do you guys think about that? The idea of positive realism. Do you get where I'm coming from, where Wallace is coming from? Yeah, I think that if I, you know, I, I first found out about a couple of facts about him, but then to, I think his, his attitude towards solving problems and looking at the world and not he didn't fit into any boxes. I think he switched parties like five times. He made new parties when he got fed up the old ones. And his focus more on, you know, essentially what the title of the speech is, like build a society for the common man, you know, that if that's the goal, like, is it capitalism? Is it communism? Is it socialism? Like, I don't know, it could be a little bit from a couple of those and mostly democracy and capitalism. But uh, he started with, you know, kind of the end result and intended to typically focus on that rather than the the ideology itself. Um, and I think that that sounds like an intriguing vision. It's It's more specific than... Um, just grandiose, you know, um, language or whatever. Uh, and so I think that's why he's appealing. I'm not sure in smaller sound bites and a whole host of reasons for the last couple decades why, why we don't see that more. I mean, I think part of it, like the appeal that we're talking about, is just that, like, it seems very genuine when he's saying it, right? Because kind of like Landon said, I mean, he switched parties. Um, he was so close to the top, got knocked down, but then was right there, like you said, like back in when Truman was president. So um, it does seem like there is some sense of just, yeah, he genuinely, like, he was obviously an intelligent guy. He was articulate, and, like, he genuinely thought these things would be the best, you know, the best course of action. So, he was not afraid to say them, right? Even to the point where it got him, right, not put on the vice president ticket for Roosevelt's last term. So I think that is kind of unique. Um, I don't want to bash politicians because that's not what we're here to do. And like, like Mike said, there's several of them that probably are good, but I think that is, to be totally honest, somewhat unique. Just people being so willing to just be genuine. Like, this is what I think, and I think it's the best thing. And so I'm not afraid to say it, um, even if it, you know, as opposed to just people saying whatever they need to say to get elected, he, I mean, said that thing that literally took him away from possibly being president. So um, that is somewhat, yeah, encouraging. I'm I'm going to try really hard to bridge two parts of Wallace's speech and bring them in to current events. <laughs> All right. Um, one I think of we the can other, and we should. Yep, go the for other it. That struck me. One of the pieces of the speech which struck me that we have not talked about was a line. Um, let me do my control find real quick so I can go back to. And while you're doing at. that, for the fans, I haven't seen Mike this excited in like six months. <laughs> um, here, here's the line that struck me. He said, "Men and women." cannot be really free until they have plenty to eat 
and time and ability things over. And what I put in the reply or comment section alongside that text was um, the Latin abbreviation for reference. Uh, internet? Question mark? Question mark? Question mark? Does the internet internet liberate or enslave? Now, of course, I mean it liberates and enslaves. I'm not going to be an utter extremist like I'm criticizing here, but connecting it to this idea of the positive re- realism, Connect- we yeah. we can. I think I'm just putting this out there. When we operate in certain spaces in the internet, we can come to believe that the world is defined by more lines than it actually is. More lines between good and evil people, right? And good and evil policies. When reality is obviously not that way. Well, I don't think it is. It's in reality this constant tension between good and exists, but exists inside of every one of us, not inside of one group of people versus another group of people. And I think what the internet maybe does is it sort of like smothers this positive realism, right? Because a positive realism that Vice President Wallace brings to the table and a few other politicians is this idea that good and evil can become very blurred, right? Maybe the best way to to reduce abortions is not by strictly voting for quote unquote pro-life president, but rather someone whose policies um, have evidence to actually reduce abortions, even though that's surprising. I have more on that if you guys want to explore that. But um, anyway, it, it, again, I'll, I'll stop talking. You guys, you guys picking up anything I'm throwing down a little more explanation where we at. Yeah, so I think the last part I heard, you talked about the internet, but then switched to, um, gosh, how, how would I rephrase it? Yeah, I mean, it was focusing, focusing on the end result rather than the theories that may or may not get to the end result. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that's a, that's an accurate. Which, which to pull out something way far back here, and our listeners probably don't even know this, because before the podcast was a real thing, we actually did a pilot episode, a secret episode, um, if you will. And um, I'm, I can't quote it, but I believe Teddy Roosevelt himself, in a speech given post-presidency in Paris, pretty much said the same thing, that we need to stop being so concerned with – if somebody presents a good idea, it's a good idea. And it doesn't necessarily have to be who said it, how they got there, that type of thing. Like if somebody presents a good idea, whether they disagree with you on other things or whether even, you know, that that's still a good idea. So you can support that. Um, and not that it's the exact same thing that Mike was saying, but um, it kind of made me think of that a little bit, like kind of this positive realism, I guess. You know, we, we, we can edit this out if need be, but... You know, to keep sort of like just exploring this concept of freedom that he presents, because, I mean, I don't don't know about you guys, but just the way that he says it's just dead on what real freedom is, these sort of base freedoms here. And it it prompts me to just think a little bit more critically about what, what real freedom is and how our freedoms are actually being infringed on, right? I mean, we obviously operate... For those who are listening to this podcast in the year 2030 or and beyond, we're in a pandemic right now. Um, some of the common conversations you might hear in the word freedom coming up are things like, you know, freedom to not wear a mask or freedom, um, you know, to do these other things pertaining to the pandemic, right? Those are things that you hear. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. Thank you for uh, <laughs> that. Right. But are those the real stakes for our freedom or are they not like the way that the Internet is infringing our ability to read and talk things over? Right. Um, yeah. So I'll I'll I'll, uh, I'll cut myself off there. But it's it's just this interesting, interesting idea.
I'm really glad that you're bringing up the internet, and I feel like we're, we've pooped on the internet in a few different podcasts. Um, I know this Eric Snowden one we talked about some of the issues with that being enslaving, but gosh, like, yeah, I mean, I, I really do, uh, I really do think that me, well, not even just that medium. I would say even just cable news, um, or just the the short attention span and the ability for just the American public to spend more than like 60 characters worth of attention to, uh, to different things, um, is, yeah, I think is that that is a fundamentally problematic issue that does not allow for people like Henry Wallace or whatever kind of, whatever you want to call it, the, the positive realism or, or whatever. It doesn't allow presidential candidates who are, um, who are just thoughtful, realistic people. Um, one, I mean, I think, uh, um, I mean, Andrew Yang is someone who stands out as like that sort of person who's very interested in the end result and is very open to like a variety of means of getting there. Like he's not opposed to, um, cutting taxes potentially if that's something, you know, or he wouldn't be opposed to like, he, or he doesn't seem to be that way. I don't know his exact policies on that sort of thing. Um, but then he's also like, well, shoot, why don't we try this universal basic income thing? Like this, you know, mathematically, it seems like it might work out, blah, blah, blah. Um, but he's very willing to have conversations about like how to do it, not just let's do this, this ideological thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would absolutely, I would say more than just the internet and, and perhaps the internet's contributed to this, but perhaps, um, just our a lack of attention span has led to the popularity uh, uh, and expansion of the internet. But I, either way, I would say more, more precisely than the internet per se, uh, because I mean, like Mike, you mentioned earlier, it liberates us and it, you know, uh, it liberates us as well as enslaves us. Um, I think our just attention span needs to get better and our ability to, to suspend our judgment uh, needs to get better to, to really improve those sorts of conversations and to allow people, um, with some sort of, uh, more thoughtful, realistic, positive message to come through. Yeah, that's, that's it. cool thoughts on the positive realism. I have two other things too, real quick. So things we haven't really talked about. So right, Landon, I think you mentioned earlier in the, in your, kind of the quick bio on Wallace. So um, he was kind of ahead in his time, like on like some social issues, right? Like racial justice, or maybe Mike mentioned it, women's working rights, things like that. Um, can, what, like what policy, did he advocate for policies? I mean, I read that as well, but I didn't get into like the specifics. Like what was he about for those things that he's remembered for? I do not know off the top of my head. Let me see if I can look at one note. But yeah, he does throw out that term several times in two of his speeches. I mean, I read that like he was about. Yeah. I think about women's working rights, something with social justice, with you know, for like African Americans, kind of you know, kind of the more liberal side of things, like we said earlier, in a way. Um, but I just didn't get any specifics. Like, did he advocate for policies or like, what was he, what it is, what exactly did that mean? Yeah, he never. So I think what's hard uh, with Wallace and his political background is that he never ran for anything. So he was a bureaucrat, essentially. Um, you know, Roosevelt appointed him to. Secretary of Ag, I he would have had to, I guess, been elected in 41 for VP. That wasn't, I don't think, as much of a public vetting platform process as um, it would be today. And then he kind of retired into civil life. So as I like kind of quickly scroll through some of his biographical notes, his policy positions on everything like aren't super clear. I think. I think given the title of the speech and what he's known for, like social justice and the common man, regardless of race, ensuring that the political system is 
designed such that it, um, you know, benefits the most for the most good at the most times, I think was his, you know, general thesis, you know, say for like going to war and war really doesn't help anyone. Um, so I, th- I think it'd be mostly focused on the common man. With that, we talked a bit about him um, and what he stood for. And as we as we wrap up some of our, you know, the ugliest war of the century, maybe of the last couple centuries, we were going for a, we were trying to evoke some hope and inspiration for uh, coming out of this this great bloody battle uh, involving nearly all nations of the world, did we? And, and perhaps, perhaps, uh, perhaps not. Did we? But what? What was the biggest how? Um, or if we fell short, you could say that too. But Henry Wallace, kind of the. Uh, had the most precise vocabulary for what to do with all of this newfound power and influence that he knew America was going to quickly have, or perhaps already did. And his proposal was to make it the century of the common man. If Henry were on this podcast and we're coming, we're a decade or two away from it being a century. Um, how would he measure the progress? Has it has it been the century of a common man? Have we, in what ways have we lived up to it, or that or uh, of highlight to you, or in what ways have we much to improve? I think we have lived up to it well. Um, uh, simply. I don't think we are perfect. I don't think that there's not still progress to be made. But if you look at life for humans, like in the U.S. today, compared to what they were at the time, I think you'd have a hard time saying it's not better in most ways. So I would say we're not perfect, but I think we've lived up to it well. Uh. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'd have to agree. I mean, I think I sort of take a stand-back approach to Ross. You know, remember, we're not fighting against in our own personal growth against our um, neighbor down the street with a $500,000 house. We're fighting against being basically wild baboons in the forest, right? I mean, that that's a realistic uh, situation that humans lived in for, I don't know, like 300,000 years. That's what we're fighting against, and that is what government uh, society has um, provided for us in many ways with so little work on our part an almost embarrassingly small amount of work um my girlfriend maggie and i we started doing this exercise from the arc manliness there's our brett mckay toss out there that's 16 straight episodes we wanted to keep that streak going um, we ask ourselves three questions every single night we've been doing it the past uh week or so what did you receive today? What did you give today? And what problems or suffering did you cause today? And what we received is so insanely long of a list every single day because it is so easy to live in the United States versus as a baboon in the forest. I mean, I mean that's a silly way of putting it, but I mean, it, it's serious at the same time. So... In this very long, drawn-out way, uh, yes, it's it's not easy being a common man or common woman, but um, I think that the United States has done a pretty good job compared to the alternative. To just jump off your thought, to connect it to a thought we had earlier before Matt gives his answer, 
I think that's one of the things you said, what makes Wallace so appealing. And like I kind of said, he's very genuine, but I, that's one of the things I dislike most about listening to sometimes politicians speak is they think the only way they can get their point across is by telling you how bad it is with someone else's policies. But I simply, I usually look at it like, but you're like compared, compare my life or anybody's life in the U.S. right now to anybody else. I mean, outside of like a king in France in 1500, like compare that to anyone else's life in the last a thousand years. And it's better on every front. They have a house, they have an iPhone. And yes, I'm not saying poverty doesn't exist. I'm again, I'm not trying to argue that we're perfect, but that it seems to be that 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 idea of, oh, it's so bad because this person's policies. It's like, well, things are still pretty darn good. So um to kind of owed to Wallace here, seeming to speak his mind on why he thought his policies were best, I think was, the, was a more effective approach. I'm going to echo you guys a fair amount. Because um, even beyond the baboons in the forest comparison, let's just look at the 1940s when he was giving the speech. There was, I mean, medically, like people were dying of polio and a bunch of other stuff, Right. There was no polio vaccine yet. I don't think that was the 50s. Is that right? I don't know if my history is exactly right on that. But if there was a polio vaccine, certainly wasn't widely distributed. And there probably wasn't the whole other arsenal of vaccines and much beyond vaccine, just the, the medical things that, that we have at our disposal. Um, just as like one more specific instantiation of, of that sort of thing. The only way I would say we failed or maybe not the only, not definitely not the only way. Perhaps a substantial way we failed. Um, I would say just to, kind of just to emphasize a few things that came up earlier, just with our, um, I mean, I phrased it as like the lack of attention span. I, I do feel like the, um, I don't know, the thoughtful, the thoughtful soul, and perhaps this is, is a, a false nostalgia, um, for a time that never existed. Maybe everyone was just as, uh, kind of immediate and thoughtless as they are nowadays that you just weren't there to experience it. But, um, but yeah, I, I do think that there is something, um, kind of toxic about the, uh, immediacy with which we, um, uh, digest, not, not even digest, just consume and then spit out, um, media and, and and data and things that I think does kind of suck the soul out of out of things. So I would say in that way we've we've perhaps failed uh to live up to the century of the common man. Nice. I would say if Henry were sitting here, Vice President Wallace, um I think it would I think it would look far different if we were reviewing the major milestones of the decade that made the history books, you know, I, I'm not sure it would line up with exactly maybe the way he thought it different points would look. Um, not a good or a bad thing. I think what he envisioned and how things unfolded, we did get into wars. We, you know, a war every other decade or a little more. Um, but to use an example of today, 2020, you know, we've had a trade war, a, you know, we're calling China's hand and, you know, making sure they're doing business ethically, you know, treating their people better and on the condition that we'll sell corn to them or whatnot. Um, and I think, you know, there's, you know, there's an entire, you know, almost mercantile country, a billion people who, in the last 30 years, whose standard of living has, you know, skyrocketed. You know, many tens of percentage points have, have come to the farm, to the city, and are not impoverished anymore. All, you know, between the Western world, perhaps the United States leading it, buying their stuff, and our commercialism and capitalism is driving, you know, the benefit of other nations. Um, and I think that... He was right. I think capitalistic democracy has it, its tools and ways to um, bring people up. And I think sometimes the nuance of of how that works and how it's if if standard of living and uh, people's comfort and their ability to 
to to read and write and think and talk and do that with a phone, with books. I think more people do that today or have the chance of doing that today than in 1940 uh, by a significant amount. And, yeah, I think the common man has achieved a lot. So that's Henry Wallace. Any final thoughts? I got one quick final thought. Sorry, Landon, before you take us home, if that's okay. So just add to the complex – I'm going to do this in quick – but just add to the complexity of – um, Wallace and how even in my own head my wheels are turning because five minutes ago I was arguing that the common man's doing so well but um, one thought I had kind of jumping off Matt's point like he commented like yeah we're not perfect but one area where I think we've failed maybe um, I'm going to give a quick shout out to a friend of a couple of ours his name is John Zegar uh, me and John disagree on a lot of things we agree on some things we like to argue about them but one point that I will say he challenged me on a couple months ago that this kind of stuck with me was if things are so much better, so kind of thinking, right, he's vice president in the 1940s. So to paint a picture, and I understand that's a stereotype to our fans, but, you know, kind of a time when the typical quote-unquote family, right, you have your mom, your dad, they had a bigger family than we do back nowadays, maybe five, six kids, the dad worked, the mom stayed home, that picture, right? The idea of it's it seems that that was a, a legitimate thing at some point, right, that we kind of had that uh, kind of one income could support a big family kind of thing. And mm-hmm. I think in today's world, it seems incredibly daunting to someone, say, 20 years old, that, wow, I could have a spouse and five kids on just my income and provide effectively. Um, I think that's really hard for a lot of people. Um, and oh, to yeah. me, that's kind of a common man. you right. So um, that's, I think. To kind of add to the complexity we've talked about so much, um, there's a lot of sides to different things, but that is, I think, one area. That, that that thought, I guess, has stuck with me a little bit. So, Landon, you can take us home. Yeah, certainly. I think that Wallace understood the long arc of history and talked about a couple times, like, you know, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Latin American, Bolivian, German, Russian. And, you know, there's always... He talks about the the long pull of the people fighting for rights, justice, equality, you know, to live in comfort. And, like, that that is not done yet. It, it uh, is still very much a work in progress. And I think 2020 has shown several signs in places where... There's there's obvious work to do to make more feel like being a common man is like, um, you know, the best the best thing you can have. Because um, for many people, they're not there yet, or they don't feel as as satisfied. So great discussion. I really enjoyed this one. I think. Uh, I think there are some gems hidden in history, and here at the Great Speech, we're we're always going to find them and and talk through those forgotten to history and and the lessons that uh, we can still learn from them today. Until next time.